Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good afternoon. My name is Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. We are delighted to have been asked to curate for the Sunday Times Festival of Education with Wellington College, the closing panel. Editorial Intelligence's business is the business of networking and what we call uh, face-to-face Facebook. So it's particularly apt that the way we've programmed this closing discussion is on what uh, can the Facebook generation learn? What do they need to learn? I'm going to hand over back to Anthony and I would like to take this opportunity, I think on all your behalf, to thank Anthony Selden and his colleagues at Wellington College and the Sunday Times for producing such an outstanding weekend of educational excellence. So, If, if such a thing existed, Anthony would probably win the poll of poll of, as the teacher's teacher. He's probably the best educated, best published teacher in the UK with more than 25 books under his belt. I know what an inspiring head teacher he is at Wellington. So without further ado, he's going to introduce his rather wonderful panel, Anthony. Well, thanks, Julia, and thanks very much to Editorial Intelligence for your support for us here at the festival. Again, thank you, everybody, for staying. We're going to debate this proposition, what does the Facebook generation need to learn? And that's a wonderful title to to bring together many of the themes that uh, we've had in in the 80 different sessions over the last two days. And it's going to be a light version, uh, spelt um, in the correct way, which is L-I-T-E. And it is... um, Uh, It is something that's going to be over, just so you do know, at ten past six. So uh, the panellists are going to be speaking for five minutes each. I am barely going to introduce them because that will save time and that will give us 25 minutes for questions. And we're going to begin with Sarah Churchwell, who is uh, going to uh, be speaking first. Uh, Sarah is one of our most celebrated academics. Uh, Her title is Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at UEA in Norwich. Uh, But uh, her fame goes way, way beyond uh, uh, East Anglia, way beyond Britain, way beyond the English-speaking world. Uh, Is that okay? Fabulous. Uh, You've got four and a half minutes. You've got four and a half minutes left then, Sarah, on that one. Thank you very much. Um, I was actually che- can everybody hear me okay? We had a problem with my mic. Is it it's all right in the back? Okay, great. Um, I was actually checking with Ben um, as the digital expert here about when exactly Facebook uh, launched because I couldn't quite remember. And, um, and he confirmed for me that Facebook, of course, started in 2004, which is even a little bit later uh, than, I, than I remembered. And, of course, it was Harvard only, as we all know, for the first year. And then it was uh, .edu only, which is you know, the American academic uh, university web. So y- basically it wasn't a public... Uh, forum as we now know it until about 2006, 2007. So by, by now I, I teach literature, not math, but even my, uh, even I can do the sums there. Uh, that means the Facebook generation is about four years old uh, at the moment, um, at the oldest, right? The old, if, if we're being literal about this. Um, 
So I take it what they need to learn is, you know, how to read. <laughs> I mean, um, they're still they're still getting there. Um, but that's basically my point uh, of what I want to say. There's a some of you will know um, if you've ever done improvisation or ever watched Inside the Actors Studio show I love, um, that, um, that there's a principle in improvisational theater that you say yes and. You don't stop a conversation. If you're supposed to be keeping it going, you take whatever they give you and you never shut it down because that's bad manners and it stops the conversation. I'm afraid I'm going to slightly break that rule um, because the, the principle of the question, so the premise of the question, what does the Facebook generation need to learn, implies that the Facebook generation is uniquely ignorant or in some way has some educational problem that previous generations haven't had. Um, as far as I know, and, and taking the Facebook generation less literally and, and using it to mean people who have grown of age with digital media, with the internet, which is what I take it, the, the question is asking us to think about how is social media changing the ways that we educate and the ways that, that people may or may not think. Um, it seems to me that, that if we're talking about the, the people that I educate, today's 18-year-olds, they need to learn the same thing that I needed to learn when I was 18 and that the previous generation needed to learn when they were 18 and that basically they need to learn what 18-year-olds need to learn. Um, and, and that is a, a whole host of, of things, but that Facebook per se uh, does not seem to me, or the social media that it, that it emblematizes, does not seem to me to be um, the, the uh, dumbing down and the, and the tool of ignorance that a lot of people people uh, uh, seem to think it is and are, and are worried about. I think that um, new technologies always strike fear in people. Books were once very, very worrying. Um, the novel, of course, means the new. And uh, as anybody who knows their 18th century history knows, uh, and I don't have to tell this to Neil, um, there were Jeremiads when the novel first came out against its seductive power, particularly for young women, because we're uniquely susceptible, as we all know. Um, and, um, and young women were going to get seduced, and they were going to be led astray. It was very pornographic. It was very violent. It was full of sex and violence. Well, they said the same thing about film, and they said the same thing about radio, and they said the same thing about television. And they are all full of sex and violence, and there's a reason for that. Our stories are full of sex and violence because the world is full of sex and violence, and these are the stories that we keep coming back to. Um, so from my point of view, as somebody who studies uh, narrative and the evolution of stories, um, it seems to me that we're, that we're always readdressing this question, and we're always worried about what the kids are doing these days. Um, and we're always certain, it's a, it's a very easy nostalgia, we're always certain that when we were being educated, it was all much more straightforward. Um, and, uh, and, now, you know, and now it's all very dangerous and very worrying. And I always think about the, the pop music examples that you know, in the 1940s, people thought Frank Sinatra was really leading young girls astray. And then Frank Sinatra became the safe one, and Elvis Presley was really leading young girls astray. And then Elvis became the safe one, and it was the Rolling Stones who were really leading people astray. And it's always whatever the kids are interested in right now that's a little bit dubious, and we're just not certain if they're actually going to learn anything. Um, it seems to me that the principle of education is the same regardless of whatever the medium is that we're getting the message through and that people are using to, to communicate with. The principles of education are the same. What we want is for people to be educated not only in terms of information and knowledge that we think is valuable because it gives us a sense of, of uh, an understanding of our history so that maybe we don't reinvent the wheel and make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, there are values to knowing history because in principle we might actually learn from them uh, uh, the, the lessons of the past. Um, 
and the, the principle also of education in our values that, uh, that Bob Geldof was talking about so eloquently, the notion of enlightened self-interest, um, that part of what we educate, as, as all the educators here know, is not just ideas or information, but we educate in value systems. And it seems to me that that is, that that is historically consistent. Um, and what we have now is a set of new technologies that we need to think through flexibly and creatively, but I'm not sure that we're having to solve new problems. We're just having to use different tools to solve them but that seems to me to be uh, a consistent truth across history. So call me complacent. You wouldn't be the first. Paul Morley said I, exactly that when I made this argument with him. He said, no, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, and you are being way too complacent about this. Maybe I am, but it seems to me that modernity is marked by these moments of anxiety, but we keep coming around, and we keep pushing through, and, um, and I think Bob is right. If we, I, I'm going to call him Bob because he and I go way back. Um, if... If we, if we are able to transmit the values of tolerance and we are able to transmit the values of education itself and to see education as a good and ignorance as something that drags people down, and uh, then, then it seems to me that we will still be, uh, you know, trucking along and, and that civilization is not coming to an end. Although, again, the man who wrote the book on civilization, uh, I, will, I will defer to, to him. Well, thank you, Sarah, for getting us off to a, an absolutely cracking start. I was very nice, please panel note, I was extremely nice to Sarah there because she was talking so beautifully that her six and a half minutes oh, flew, flew by as if it was five minutes, you know. Uh, it was that good. Uh, what pressure, therefore, that is on Jenny Russell, who is talking next, is on my immediate right, uh, who is uh, writes for The Standard, for The Guardian, for The uh, Sunday Times. Uh, last month, she won the very prestigious uh, Orwell Prize. Orwell, by the way, was at... Uh, Wellington College, uh, briefly, uh, before, before going to Eton, didn't, wasn't good enough here. Uh, and that very prestigious prize and her particular interest, Jenny's uh, politics and also education. So, Jenny. I'm to be asked to speak about this topic because for 10 years I've been writing about how wrong I think the education system has been for most of the children going through it. Not those who are privileged enough to come to schools like this, but the majority who are going to a state education system which has been driven by a central government interested principally only in numbers, figures and targets and not the educational experience of the children going through it. Just before I came on stage, I was talking to Dominic Lawson from the Sunday Times and I was saying what the topic was and he said, oh, his advice is very simple to the Facebook generation. Sign out of the damn thing. <laughs> That alone would, would, would improve your educational performance tremendously. He said that with feeling because he has a teenager. But more seriously, I think that there are three things which are absolutely essential that um, children should be learning. And the first is the ability to get on with others. The second is learning how to learn. And the third is learning how to be entrepreneurial and how to take control of your own destiny. And with those three skills, if you've got them, then your life is set. People will want to employ you, people will want to work with you, you'll be able to find new jobs or create your own when you can't. And I think that all those three have been signally missing from the education that's on offer in Britain today. There's always been an assumption in every society that schools are fundamentally about socialising children. And I think fatally under New Labour, that assumption disappeared. Education became principally about do we get the children to hit their targets, do we get them to get their five GCSEs, and the government was not really concerned about what was going on in schools. And the consequence of that in a great many schools is that you get, is that you get classrooms where teachers are simply fighting to control, where children um, are out of control, and even those who really want to work find themselves disturbed by the behaviour of those around them. And what those children are learning, the value system that they're learning, 
is absolutely useless. They're learning that if you are naughty, you get attention, and they're learning that if you want to work, it's pretty hopeless and unpopular, and no one rewards you for it. And the problem with that is that an IPPR study um, a few years ago showed that during the 80s and the 90s, social skills had become something like five times more important to employers than they were before. And it was exactly at this period that for working class children, they were no longer being socialized by all the community and family influences that used to do that job for them. Because all those old structures were disappearing and families were breaking up. And this meant that these children were particularly ill-served when they came to go out into the economy. It didn't matter whether or not they'd managed to get their five GCSEs. They fundamentally didn't know how to behave. So in the East End, for instance, the Young Foundation is running a scheme now where it takes graduates from the area Good degrees, can't get jobs because they have no idea how to shake hands, conduct an interview, work in an office, make telephone calls or anything else. Three weeks on that course and those, children, those graduates' expectations are transformed. And this absolutely has to be the role of schools. It always has been in the private sector. They've always sold themselves on the basis that they're teaching manners and character and behaviour. And that act actually has to be a fundamental part of the school experience of this generation. The next part is learning how to learn. What we've had under the, the national curriculum has been the non-learning culture. It's all about learning precisely what you have to do in order to pass an examination. It's about jumping through hoops. I'll just give you a couple of small examples of that. The one was my daughter who, when she turned up in her A-level English class at the start of the year at a very, very well-regarded grammar school, was looking forward to opening the book and reading Coleridge's poems. They didn't even open the book. They were read last year's model essay and they were told to note the 18 key points that they must reproduce in their own essay that night. The second one was um, a working-class boy at the same school who was very intellectually curious. And when he met me, he said, it's so lovely to have somebody to answer my questions. And I said, why? What happens at school? He said, the most common answer that you're given when you ask a question is, you don't need to know that. It's not on the curriculum. <laughs> and the final example, was, which was told to me this week, was Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie was having dinner with somebody that I know very slightly. And um, the 17-year-old daughter was being asked to write an essay on Macbeth, the character of Macbeth. So she enlisted Salman's help, and he helped her write a wonderful essay, and she handed it in, and two days later she got it back, and it got a C. <laughs> and the teacher said, these answers are wrong. <laughs> and that is the problem with the education system. And it, although it depresses middle-class kids, it's again, it's worst for the working classes because they find themselves in an incomprehensible and pointless system and they fall behind because they can't understand why they're being asked to do these ridiculous things. The middle-class kids can see the eventual rewards. And that's a lifetime of disaster ahead. Because as James Heckman, the Nobel Prize economist, has pointed out, if you don't learn to learn before the age of 20... You really can't learn thereafter. You can retrain a barrister, a manager, a lawyer, a teacher. You cannot retrain people whose brains have never been trained to think. And the final point is that I think entrepreneurialism is something which is completely missing from the English culture. And yet the Facebook generation is out there in a changing world where their role models are the people who started Facebook or Twitter or, or started Apple. They are not going to be able to walk into the jobs for life for which so many schools now expect to prepare them. Passivity and learning by rote is not going to prepare them for the future. If you go to America, you have an entirely different culture where people look ahead and they think, my life is going to be something that I make of it. I may get a job, but I'll also start a business. And I just want to give you one example of that. There's a friend of mine who's a television producer in LA. You'd think that was fairly demanding as a job. He's very successful. But in his spare time, 
He dreamt up the idea for an ice cream bar covered in Rice Krispies. Now, you may laugh. It's a nationwide hit. It's making him a lot of money. His, his second entrepreneurial project, being conducted aside from the day job, is starting a chain of meatball restaurants with his brother. And I think what this all tells us is that we have got to start to teach children to take charge of their own destiny. And one of the ways that we have to do that is we have to teach them differently in the classrooms. And earlier, Joel Klein, who ran New, Year, New York school system, had a brilliant, inspiring example of this. He was saying, you cannot go and teach children in the old way with 30 kids in front of you and saying, right, everybody, this is what we're learning today. One of the schools that he had been to, not only has teachers allow supervising children as they work their own way through the grade system, each of those children has an individual online tutor in Mumbai available for them, giving them encouragement, telling them where they're going. Now, I think that story is not only a terrible example to us of the globalisation of um, human capital and the fact that if we don't um, get a move on and teach our children properly, they're going to lose out in the world economy to teachers from Mumbai. But it's also terribly encouraging. It says that we can do things differently. And my last thought is that if we don't start doing all these things in, a, in the way that we've done before, our generation is really going to worry about it. Because it, unless we can unleash the, the creativity and the energy of the next generation, we in our old age aren't going to have the workers out there who are going to keep us in the style to which we'd like to be accustomed. <laughs> Well, I, I, Jenny, thank you very much. And, and there, were, uh, there were a lot of, uh, uh, of nodding heads uh, there. And, and, Jenny, you weren't here at the start. Yesterday I quoted what, for me, was, was the theme of uh, this whole conference was a couple of teachers from a state school in uh, Nottinghamshire who had come in to see us on Monday. And they both said uh, that you can forget everything that is written on state school... Um, mission statements, the fine words about educating the whole human being. State schools are there for one reason and one reason only. And it's the reason that teachers, it's the same fact that teachers are judged on, heads are judged on, schools are judged on, and that is exam passes. And everything but everything but everything has been reduced to that. Uh, and Michael Gove uh, was asked that by one of our students yesterday, and everybody heard the reply. And I'm uh, was accused yesterday of being partisan as a chairman, so I'm going to stop at that point uh, by the person who'd introduced the, this uh, system of, uh, of central control. Harvey Goldsmith uh, is uh, Britain's, the world's uh, most famous uh, rock promoter, but you all knew that. But what you didn't know, and, and what I didn't know uh, until very recently, is that Harvey is chairman of the board of the British Musical Experience that opened in the U2 arena in March 2009, and that there are 40,000 uh, school students who are going through that every year, uh, and he has a powerful commitment to uh, the education, cultural education of young people. Harvey, uh, thank you. Now, I was now going on the male side. Now, I don't quite know why we've got this split here. Uh, I'm not going to make any comment about timekeeping here, uh, other than just passing that Jenny uh, beat, uh, uh, beat the record so far. Uh, Harvey, we, we can go down. I'm a huge fan of technology and the evolution of technology. Um, but I, strangely enough, working in a business that's very conservative and takes technology very badly because it doesn't really know how to deal with it. And what we find today is that, that I think that the Facebook generation lean on technology and has the answer to life. And to me, this shows a lack of confidence. Communication platforms are a tool to be used as part of one's life 
and not one's whole life. People like to do things in packs. And what has transpired is that you can extend the pack effect to the screen on your computer, whether playing complex game role games or as simple as playing Scrabble with friends, the Facebook generation today use the computer as their entry to the world. And the trick is, can you live without Facebook and the new technology? Interestingly enough, recent tests have shown that teenagers actually suffer from withdrawal symptoms if their phone is taken away for any length of time. It's like coming off a drug. They are seen to be scratching and listless, as if they've gone cold turkey, and this is a real worry. I asked some of my staff and some of the younger staff in my office for some pointers on what Facebook means to them, and I was quite surprised at their response, and here are some of them. The meaning of real friends is three. Three true friends rather than 300 cyber friends. Nothing like good old-fashioned pen and paper to write to someone. It means ten times more. Kids need to get out. No one has that many friends. Correct spelling is now unimportant. There is life without a computer. And know when to stop. I find myself trapped on Facebook. I wish I could log on, check in and log off. I waste so much time on it. It can be a great way to share with people all over the world, but things are not as al always as they seem. You can always put a good photo into Facebook, but who's fooling whom? And then Bob Leftsetz, who is a, an American daily blogger with a huge following, actually said on the 15th of June, finally cancelled my Facebook account today. That was long overdue. Sites built upon user-generated content are vulnerable. Any day, people can pick up and their content and take it elsewhere, or stop playing entirely. People want to connect, but after you've hooked back up with everybody you've ever met, then what? And Facebook's problem has always been profitability. I may want to go and connect, but explain to me why I want to buy there too. And Facebook counters this by being the enemy instead of the friend, changing privacy controls essentially without notice angers users. There's absolutely no reason why Facebook needs to survive. I'm not saying it won't, but what I am saying is that those who believe it's the end all and the be all, that it can't die, are wrong. It's hard to replicate Amazon's distribution system, for example, never mind the infrastructure of its website. But what exactly does Facebook sell again? We've developed a new generation of young people who somehow are tech-savvy, but do not read and certainly can't spell. Life's about personal contact and communication. That is why music concerts work so well. We seem to have lost our confidence to be different and creative. We use the tools to hide our fear of general communication and social grace. We don't allow time to think before responding. And to some extent, creative juices have gone out of the window for the time being. So what we need to learn is, use the tools sparingly. Remember, we're human beings 
and we actually like to meet each other. And finally, response needs careful thought. Thank you. Thank you very much. For, um... That's not at all what I expected you to say, Harvey, and I'm delighted that, that we've had that dimension in it uh, today. Uh, Neil Ferguson, LSE, Harvard, whole stream of books, uh, is going to now offer his opinion. Well, when I was asked what the Facebook generation needed to learn, I, I thought of the things that I list at the end of my book, Civilization, as the essential reading of Western civilization. If we were going to have a Koran that everybody had to read, what would it be? And I thought, it's kind of obvious, but let me just say it. The plays of Shakespeare, the King James Bible, John Locke's Two Treatises of Government, Smith's The Wealth of Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments, Darwin's The Origin of Species, and Churchill's Wartime Speeches. That would do me. If my children just read those, I would be content. What is the likelihood that the Facebook generation will read those things? Practically zero. Practically zero. Let me tell you a few, a few facts that I hope will shock you. On average, uh, 15 to 24-year-olds spend two and a half hours a day watching TV. They spend seven minutes reading. Even a quarter of college students, of university students admit that they read less than one hour a week. One in three teenagers, one in three, sends more than 100 text messages a day. A day. Average uh, time spent on online gaming is 7.3 hours a week. If you want to know uh, what worries me most, take a look at Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. A profound and I think damaging shift is happening in the way that we digest information, in the way that we communicate. It's explosive and its biggest impact is on teenagers. And its net effect is to destroy reading as I grew up doing it. And I don't want to understate it, to destroy it. I can't actually compute how much less my teenage children have read compared with how much I had read at their age. But the ratio is easily 100 to 1. So we have a problem. What's the answer? I want to suggest two things. One, following something Joel Klein said earlier today, is that we have to make this technology work to our advantage. We have got to catch up and compete with the distraction that technology currently represents. And that can be done, but it requires a quantum shift in the way that educational content is delivered. The, the old dry-as-dust textbook has to go and be replaced by e-textbooks. We need to make much more use of video as a way of communicating valuable content. We need to make games serious so that they can learn from games rather than just wandering around fictionalized battlefields, slaughtering Nazi zombies, which is what your teenage sons currently do 
for 7.3 hours a week. Don't kid yourselves. They ain't in that darkened room reading Shakespeare. <laughs> but the other thing we need to do, at the same time as going with this tide, is we need to create space in their lives where they do go cold turkey, where they are cut off from the relentless distraction of text messages, email, Facebook, and all the rest of it. And I would like to suggest at this conference that perhaps Wellington could pioneer exclusion zones where for significant parts of the school day, the pupils are cut off from that kind of electronic stimulus and where the only available source of information is books. And I would like to go even further and suggest that in the summer, rather than idling away their time in the Caribbean islands, <laughs> your children should spend at least one month at one of the camps that I tend to, intend to establish in very remote parts of Scotland, where there is no cell phone coverage, there is no Wi-Fi, it rains all the time, there are midges outside, they are going to have to read. There will be nothing else to do. And I christen these camps, and I want to announce it today, Book Camp. <laughs> Subscriptions are available outside the tent. Thanks very much. Well, I, I can see if uh, the minister was uh, still here, the Secretary of State, um, the, the very idea of, of a book camp, indeed some of his more right-wing colleagues would, uh, uh, they wouldn't understand, of course, a word of what you meant by it, but, but just the, the, the ring of it would sound very romantic and impressionistic <laughs> to quite a lot of the Conservative uh, government. Uh, book camp, well, that's very good, and that leads us now on to someone who might have views about whether books... Uh, Neil, have to be read um, on paper or whether they can be equally validly uh, read uh, digitally. Uh, ben Hammersley is one of the uh, great global figures on the digital age, uh, popularly uh, known as uh, uh, for, for coining uh, the phrase podcast. Uh, he is editor-at-large of Wired magazine, lectures all around the world on uh, uh, new technology. Ben, what, what are your thoughts? I, uh, I thank you. I, I think Neil is, is going, you're far too um, liberal on this. Vellum is the way to go. <laughs> and if not vellum, you know, writing things down, is, the Socratic dialogue is literally, that's it. We should all be in Greece, really. <laughs> we could probably afford to buy Greece by the summer anyway. <laughs> At least Wellington College could, but, you know. We already own it, actually, technically speaking. I think really what we're seeing here is, and even in the title of the talk, is, is a is evidence of a generational shift. As, as Sarah said, Facebook is, is far too young to be talking about a Facebook generation, but we, but we can be talking about an internet generation. And really, the internet generation, there was, a, there was a, a couple of months where the world changed completely, around about autumn 1990. Um, I'm, not, I'm going to get the date wrong, and sitting next to an eminent historian, I'm not going to attempt it, but sometime in October 1990, Germany was reunited. And on Christmas Eve... 1990, the first web server was turned on. And instantly, in that few weeks, a couple of hundred miles from each other, the, the modern world changed entirely. 
And we now really have two generations, the pre-1990 generation and the post-1990 generation. The pre-1990 generation spent their entire time in darkened rooms reading Shakespeare and Locke and Adam Smith. And then after 1990, we had a completely different world. It was no longer the bipolar us versus them world. And it was no longer the hierarchical, I'll get a job, the graduate trainee scheme of Marks and Spencers and make, work my way up until I retire with a gold watch at the age of 65. We're now living in a world which is asymmetric, massively asymmetric. It's network-based rather than hierarchical. And we no longer have one big enemy that we can send a postcard to and meet in Iceland every so often. We have lots of enemies. We have a completely changed world that changes at a pace which is unprecedented. There's a technological rule of thumb. If you're a chip designer, I'm sure there are some chip designers here today. If you're a chip designer, you'll have heard of a thing called Moore's Law. Now, Moore's Law was uh, first written down by Gordon Moore, who was one of the co-founders of Intel in 1965. And 1965 was about seven years after the first integrated circuit. And what he realized was that every year since 1957, when the first integrated circuit came out, the number of components for the same price on a chip doubled. And Moore's law has really stayed constant since then. Which means that, for the same price, computing power doubles every year or so. The generation that we're talking about, the Facebook generation, lives in a world which is both very, very complex and increasingly complex, but also one where the only thing that is constant, the only thing we can actually teach, is change itself. Moore's law really makes planning for the future very, very difficult. If you think of a graduate today, by the time they get to be in a senior position, so maybe 20 years, computing power will be around about 500,000 times as powerful. Or the same amount of computing power will be one half a millionth of the price. Over a full career, Mathematicians in the room will know this is an exponential curve. We are talking of millions and millions and millions of times as powerful. And when you have a thing as the internet, which is the dominant platform for our social, our cultural, our economic, and our political lives, being based on a technology which it itself is changing at such a rate, then asking what is it we can teach the Facebook generation, of course there's all of the standards, and those things are never going to change. Reading and writing and the greats. They're, of course, they're completely, I, I agree with everybody on the panel about these things. And the, and, the, and the mechanics of social relationships. Those of you interested, I would look up the, the phrase, the Dunbar number. An, Robin Dunbar is an anthropologist who worked out that the maximum number of social relationships you can possibly fit into your head is 150. It's, it, it, and this is a universal number across all civilizations. So people with 500 Facebook friends... When, you, when you're going to sit there and have the argument that how can they possibly have 500 Facebook friends, well, they don't. They don't. It's just a term of art that you're misunderstanding. Of course, we have all of these greats, and we should teach that. But the most important thing for the Facebook generation, the thing that we possibly didn't have to teach before, is the fact that the world is changing and will continue to change. And the, the real skills, the things that are most important are the skills that take into account the fact that the computer that you have in your pocket when you start university is one thirty-seventh of the power of the computer you'll have in, the, in your pocket when you graduate. 
And the, the world is changing so fast that if you don't have the change management ability, the ability to adapt and learn continuously how to deal, deal with these technologies, we can forget the rest of it. The rest of it is, is irrelevant because you'll be left behind. The problem we face, however, is this is not a generational thing. These skills, this ability to deal with change, is not something which is restricted to those, of us, those people who are at school. And it's not something that the old guys can sort of give to the younger generation and say, there you go. It's something that everybody in this room really, really needs to deal with on a personal level. Specifically, politicians. At the last election, it became very, very apparent to those of us in the digital world, quite physically upsettingly apparent, that we have entrusted our future to people who are currently confused by our present. Don't be that person. That's the message that you have to take away from today. The question isn't really what can we teach the Facebook generation, but what do we have to teach ourselves to live alongside the Facebook generation? That's the key problem. Well. Uh, th thank you very much indeed, uh, Ben, there. Um, you almost flipped it around and said, uh, what can the Facebook generation teach us? I'm going to allow Harvey Goldsmith to just make a, a, a comment back, not because that's in any uh, of the rules. I've totally broken the rules, but I am hoping that if I let him make this point now, he will promote me with my air guitar. Harvey Goldsmith. <laughs> I, I think basically, I, it wasn't just me, but I think from the different perspectives you've heard on the table, it might, to some of the younger generations here, sound a bit scary. But I personally think that, you know, as with everything, life is about balance. And currently, there's an imbalance. And there's an imbalance in tradition and our, our history and where we've come from to where we're going. And I think what you've just said is partly the cause of that balance. And the problem we have is how do you redress that balance and bring it back so you can have the opportunity to enjoy and learn about your history and where you've come from and who the great scholars are, etc. But equally, you have to accept that as technology is changing so quickly, we have to try and keep abreast of it. And the biggest issue we've got today is not, is not how we keep abreast of it, is that we physically can't keep abreast of it, and because of that, We've forgotten how to remember what has happened in the past. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to thank you for that. Well said, indeed. Um, I'm going to just ask Neil whether he wants to come back. Neil was actually up four minutes and was under. Anyway, do you? I mean, you were slightly backed into a reactionary position there, uh, placed by Ben. Do you want to just come back and? and... It, must, it must be said, ladies and gentlemen, that, that Ben's notes are on paper and written <laughs> with a pen. So let's not get let's get let's not get too polarized uh, here. My laptop is right right back there, and the statistics that you heard me quote in my four-minute presentation were found through Google today. But let me let me suggest something, which because I think I think we should avoid uh, false dichotomies here. Let me suggest that there's there's a problem that we haven't yet touched on. It's not as if the internet or Facebook or any of these things are confined to the English-speaking world. 
And yet they seem to be doing more educational damage in the English-speaking world. Uh, the PISA Program for International Student Assessment Statistics have been mentioned more than once at this conference. But let me just remind you that, say in mathematics, with Shanghai on top on 600, the UK is 28th with an average score among our teenagers of 492. And the, the, the gap is almost as big for science and for reading. Why is it that Asian societies appear to be maintaining and indeed raising their educational standards measurably, while at the same time their teenagers are exposed to all the things that we are talking about here, Baidu and its, uh, and its various uh, Chinese uh, uh, counterparts. It's not as if this is just happening to our kids. I think the answer to that question is that we are failing to regulate their use of technology and we are failing to create a disciplined environment in which they know this is homework, the text messaging stops. My sense is that at the heart of our, our problem is not really the technology, it's our laissez-faire, ultra-liberal style of parenting which has essentially let the technology take over our kids' lives, invade the study, invade the library, and really destroy the possibility of sustained reading and sustained concentration. That is my concern. And that is not so much technology-specific. It is more social and discipline-related. Can, can you read a book as well digitally as on the page? No. You can't. I've tried okay, it. Okay, it doesn't I'm work. i take questions over that. I thought you were to make a point there about Ben. It's not just that he was writing notes from paper. He also has his tattoos on vellum. Uh, hold it up. There you are. Tatties on vellum. I thought you would actually have them digitally. First question over there. Two questions together. Uh, hi, my name's uh, Pete Doyle. I uh, run a rock academy in Reading. So um, I had an idea to do a live music event for charity in Reading. And uh, I thought it would make it a really cool event. So I hired the Hexagon, which is a big theatre. And I told my wife I was going to risk £5,000 money we didn't have in the Hexagon. So I was uh, under pressure. And really my, my point is... I think we've still got a lot to learn from the, from the Facebook generation because I was trained in marketing and I did a lot of street promotion. But actually, when the kids got hold of the event and they promoted it, it went very viral very quickly around Reading on Facebook. So actually, I owe them a, a great deal of uh, gratitude. Um, so I think we can learn a bit from them of how to promote things and, and share information as well. Interesting point. Um, and lady just behind. Well, I think we have every reason to be alarmed because we're the last generations that remembers life before the mobile phones and before the internet. So um, I think we should all very, be very worried. Having said that, the next generation, the most used sentence on the internet is, I am so bored. So I think we have a point in like, trying to stimulate them in every way that we can. Yeah. My question to you is, what impact do you think this new technology is going to have on, on emotional intelligence, on the amount of people that are going to be able to develop this emotional intelligence and in the amount of people that are going to be comfortable facing each other as opposed as texting each other. Okay, uh, can we just hear from a, a digital native there? Is any uh, person there under the age of 20 want to just offer a point on, how, on your emotional intelligence, how it might have been affected? Yep, someone there, let's, just, let's hear from them and then we'll, the panel just come in. So, my name's Amit Sinha, I'm 21 years old. Um, 21, sorry, you're, you're over. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm close enough. Fate, yeah. um, I, I, I'm a computer scientist and I have a very strong view on this. Um, I do feel that in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of ways, Facebook can take over one's life. Um, but for me personally, I think I have a balance. I, I can turn my laptop off, I can go read a book, I can 
you know, spend time with family. So <clears throat> I think it really does depend on the parenting and, uh, and just generally the people that are teaching us here today. So that, that's okay. my perspective. Uh, you're obviously a, a very balanced person. Do you think your, your friends, your 149 friends, are, are equally balanced? Diony, are you balanced? Well, I think, uh, I think it varies, actually. Um, what I can tell is um, university doesn't really help um, in actually dissipating yourself from the Facebook generation. It actually enhances uh, usage of extensive hours on Facebook uh, rather than actually uh, being in the library, mostly. Um, I think it, it would be actually something that... Um, it, it depends on how you, on your upbringing. Um, I, I highly consider that it, um, the university years do not help. Okay, no, I, I, I mean, two really good points. I just wanted just to hear uh, from uh, the, your generation. Uh, th thank you for that. Sarah? Yeah, just a couple of points. I mean, I think, that, I think you're right, and I think we do want to get people back in the library, but I think it's also true that the Internet is a library. Now, it's a problematic library, but it is a vast source of information, as we all know. Some of that information is corrupt. Some of it is completely unreliable. To, to Neil's point about whether you can read as well on a, on a Kindle or an e-book, I don't know what as well means. I think if you can read, you can read. What I know is that I can carry 15,000 books with me that otherwise I can't carry. And I think it's a bibliophile's dream, frankly. And I will keep saying that it is a bibliophile's dream. The, I was speaking to a, a, a website designer a couple of months ago, and Ben will tell me if the statistic is still true, but he told me that the top two, two of the top three downloads uh, consistently over the last few years have been of apps um, are uh, Kindle and ebooks. People are downloading books. They are still reading. Well, I, I do not believe that paper is morally superior to screens. I think that's frankly silly. I don't know why it would be. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that it is. The question is whether we are cognitively taking in the information, thinking it through, thinking critically, and learning history. But if we can carry 15,000 books with us, I say, great, I'm reading, you know, I can have all of Dickens and Austin with me wherever I go. I don't see that is a bad thing. Anyone want to come in on that point? Yeah, Harvey. Thank I, you. I, I think the debate about screen and paper and whatever is quite bizarre. And I, I have absolutely noticed it over the years. And I had a particular screaming match with my uh, in-house accountant last week where, where, to me, for some reason or other, when you are looking or reading something on a screen, it doesn't sink in. But when you write it down, somehow there is a connection which makes you remember. And, I, ha and I, ha I see this time and time and time again. And I'm not defending the old and, you know, poo-pooing the new. But it is a comment that somehow it, it, that effort of, of writing something down triggers the brain to remember. Whereas when you're looking at it, reading on a screen, you yeah. can ask somebody the question ten minutes later and they have no clue. Okay, thanks, Harvey. Jenny wants to come in on that. First of all, I'd like to say I'd like to just let you all in on a secret. There's a big disadvantage to the Kindle, and I discovered when it when I was skiing last year. I'd taken the Kindle, thinking, "Fantastic, I've got 150 books." If you fall on a ski slope and your ski <laughs> Kindle's in your backpack, it smashes. A paperback book would still be yeah, there. It's soaking wet. You wouldn't be able to read it. It would explode. But the uh, but the more serious point is about. Um, whether Facebook affects children's or young people's emotional behavior. And um, 
I think there are two, two things there. The one is that I think it's absolutely astonishing the way that when my children meet people, they exchange names and they say, I'll Facebook you. So they're able to make connections and keep in touch with people in a way that used to be fantastically difficult. And that's really enhanced their lives, particularly if, you're, if you've got kids who move around continent to continent. But there is a serious point here about um, the image construction of the Facebook world. There is a phenomenon which has been studied in the past couple of years by psychologists, Facebook depression. And it's a serious issue because people go online and they look at everybody else leading their splendid lives with apparently always happy at glamorous parties, having wonderful experiences, and they think, am I the only person who's actually sitting at home bored and miserable on a Friday and Saturday night because no one else is confessing to those weaknesses? And that is an issue. OK. Uh, ben, thank you, Jenny. Ben, ben quick I, one. I think we massively un um, underestimate the sophistication of youth. Massively underestimate it. The social sophistication, the way that Facebook and Twitter and all the other social networks are used is incredibly sophisticated. It's not just a, this sort of strangely you know, thin experience that I think that a lot of people consider it is. And the other thing that is a huge frustration to people under the age of about 40 is the way that people talk about computer games. The, the computer games of today are extraordinarily sophisticated experiences that require enormous amounts of cognitive effort and huge amounts of of time and thinking and they are they are beautiful beautiful things that require you to be think a lot now sure it might be thinking a lot about new and innovative ways of killing nazi zombies and that sounds quite an awesome game but i it would be amazing it'd be amazing but the puzzle the the puzzle solving the social um effects of all of these games very, very sophisticated indeed. And to think that the internet is, uh, the games on the internet of today are like the Pac-Man and sort of email of 25 or 30 years ago is, is entirely wrong. And you have to be very careful not to make valid judgments based on space invaders because you're very wrong. A, it doesn't stimulate enough. Two, you're not cognitive of it afterwards because all you want to do when you finish game one is move on to game two. OK. And that's well, part of the issue. What I would say here is, is look at Jane McGonigal's TED talk. Jane McGonigal on TED about computer games. It might change your mind. I'm going to just ask all of you here, who thinks that you can just as well, whatever that means, read a book on a Kindle digitally? Uh, hands up who thinks that, that it doesn't matter the forum. Hands up who thinks it's... In inherently superior reading it on paper. OK, we had in that poll there, we had 149 <laughs> who uh, favoured digitally and 147 uh, books. Uh, so that was close, and I'm going to call it a tie. Right, question over, over there first. I've had a chaplain. I've studied at both old and new universities, and I have a seven-year-old son, which is why I'm here. Can you hear? Sorry, Master. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Going back to the Facebook, um, I've always had an account. There have been whole years where I've never used it. My current place of employment, everybody seems to gossip on it, but it's very depressing, especially as my seven-year-old is growing up in that culture. And when I see my colleagues speaking to apparent Facebook friends, they're no friends. They haven't got any conversation to have because they're not actually talking to each other on that network. They're just playing silly games. And I worry about how my son is going to get on in society because he's not, he's not learning anything like that. It's killing uh, social skills, uh, Facebook, Ben Isler's desperate in my uh, opinion. To, to spend a penny or to, to come in there. Put your <laughs> hand up because you can't spend a penny without your hand up. Hang on. We'll get one more over there. Yep, go. 
I don't have really a question, but I just want to make a comment because I'm from Facebook generation as well. I was born in 9-0. And um, what I'm thinking is like all the panel's opinions are true about us that we prefer reading on a screen than um, reading on a paper. And then we forget things quite easier than the old generation. But another point that I want to make is that we are more informative in a way. Like, uh, we have Facebook, but we have Twitter, like actively in Twitter as well. So like, information are everywhere for us, and we know it, but we forget things easily. <laughs> okay, that's interesting too. So uh, Ben, go on. You're making a massive category error about the concept of the friend on Facebook. This is, an, this is an argument you've just got to get over. Facebook friends are not the same thing as real-life friends. They are not comparable. The experience is not the same, and the people who are on Facebook do not treat it as the same thing. If, you, if, if we're having this argument all the time about, you know, what, you know what's the status of real-world relationships when all they do is text and, and follow each other on, on Facebook, the two things are not the same. People who are on Facebook, of course they have very, very strong friendships in real life that are full of all of the social cues and all of the beautiful relationships or you know, the beautiful things that you get when you stand next to each other. Absolutely. Can I, ask, I want to ask Ben, do you have kids? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, I've got news for you, buddy. You're wrong. Because what is going on when my kids use Facebook and when they use almost any of the social networking sites is precisely that they relate to their real-world friends, but they do it in ways that are often highly offensive. Now, one of the things that I learned recently was the word frape. Have you heard the word frape? Frape is when you're raped on Facebook. Frape is when your account is hacked and something obscene is put there. Twelve-year-old boys do this in England abusive things that they would never dare say to one another's faces, that they would get kicked out of school if they said in class, happen on Facebook. Don't delude yourself. They understand very well what Facebook is. Facebook is an, op an opportunity to go beyond what's acceptable in normal human relationships. And that's why I'm so hostile to it. I think there's something dysfunctional about it that was captured quite well in the movie The Social Network. Now, I know a thing or two about this because I also teach the kind of people who invented Facebook. Right? They are my students. And it is not a benign and wonderful thing. This thing was designed to pursue social grudges within the Harvard College community. Let's not glamorize it, folks. It's making Zuckerberg a lot of money. It's making a lot of kids very unhappy. And it's wasting their time. Okay. I, I think, yeah, uh, Ben, you're going to come back on that? Are yeah. you going to have some babies now or what? Uh, well, <laughs> Facebook generation, you know, any office. Uh, the the <laughs> speed of technology these days is amazing. The, of course, there, there are bad uses of these technologies and bad uses of social tools, but there are bad uses of marker pens and there are bad uses of spray paint and there are bad uses of recording equipment. There's bad uses of printing. The, you can be offensive with any technologies. And of course, all new modern technologies, the, the speed of technological advance is way faster than the speed of etiquette advance. It, we, it took us 20 years to know not to have the mobile phone on in a restaurant. So of course, it's going to take a generation to work out how to use Facebook, but inherently, it's just a neutral technology. Ben, Sarah. Well, I think that 
That's exactly what I said at the beginning, and I agree. It is a neutral technology. People are, if people are offensive, it's because they're offensive, and people will always find modes through which they can be offensive. It is neutral. The question is how we use it. I just wanted to, to if I may, it's a very quick quotation, but, it will, but if you'll bear with me, this, will, this is worth it. Here's a quotation. We like canned food, canned heat, canned music, canned information, canned culture. The basic trouble with the much-criticized younger generation is that it is so ignorant, and Hollywood is where the young and ignorant expect to get triumph without toil, the fame without the achievement. That quotation is from a magazine in 1923. People have been saying the same thing forever, and they're always worried about what the younger generation is or isn't doing. Uh, okay, the, they have gonna, been. I, You're I'm a historian. Gonna, okay. You know this. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, who thinks that this uh, uh, new technology is uniquely dangerous, particularly for young people? Hands up. Okay, and hands up who thinks that, that, that it's just, uh, it's not uniquely it's offensive. Okay, but, but I wonder, I would like to have done an age uh, check on that. I mean, you know, as a head, I'm very aware, as other teachers will be here, about the extreme distress that can be caused to children by this new technology. And we'd be foolish if we didn't recognise that. What yes. I'd like to say is something I don't feel that the panel has really addressed so far, which is the fact that you're never really alone anymore. Um, if you're continually available to be contacted through a mobile phone, if you're not texting and being contacted, you're also aware that you're not being thought of or being contacted. And I wonder what they think about that sort of lack of ability to spend time on one's own in terms of actually reaching your academic potential. Because I know myself, I've had some of my eureka moments when I've been on my own silently, you know, so working with work. moments? You, you know, Weekend. moments where I've suddenly made progress academically have come when I've been on so, my own studying for half an hour. And if I'd been continually aware that, you know, I wasn't being texted or I was being interrupted by texting. Okay. I, I mean, I, okay, I just would thoroughly recommend that all schools doing what we do here, which is to give out our kids periods of stillness every uh, week to collect themselves total silence and they find it awesomely difficult but they do get there thank you a lady at the front i was just going to say that um i've got uh, my experience of, of young people is that they'll always latch on to something they're always um going to get obsessive about something i mean to read a hundred times more books than your children perhaps you're obsessing about books as a teenager somebody else was obsessing about cricket some yeah. and you know as youngsters they do obsess about some things i've got four children who all obsess differently they all use computers massively. I've got a very, un, uh, a very lonely child who doesn't want to do any communication with anybody else, perfectly happy, reads and reads and reads, and everything he reads is on screen, and he doesn't speak to anybody else. He doesn't have his mobile phone on. I've got other ones that are massively uh, problem-solving on really complex games. Um, and the idea of being able to... Uh, maybe I'm just a weak parent. How I, the, try, the ways I've tried to stop their, their computing have always failed because they outsmart me. Okay, uh, thank you. And we're going to have a question over here. Two quick points uh, I'd like to raise. Firstly, is the, um, relates to Niles Googling info, his statistical information. I think the first question I would have is, how do we teach our, the next generation to work their way through all this information and the veracity of that information? And the second thing I, I think they, should, they need to know is what the long-term, which none of us know, what the long-term health effects of being exposed to these electromagnetic... Okay, thank you. The long-term health effects of that second one. I'm going to ask the panel just to, to make summative points. Let's just have a few more points from the floor. My name is Max Sandhill, and I'm the co-founder of a, a platform that connects teachers and learners. But I'm also the older brother to, to three um, sisters, one of which is, is 13. And, and my question to, to Sarah is, is we focused a lot today on, on the skills which, which uh, young, this generation aren't or are getting from the Internet. But what about the values? 
a horse in its shape is a, is a, is a neutral shape. But when, you, when men hide inside it, that's a Trojan horse. And I look at, at the, the stereotypes which can often be portrayed through YouTube videos, through pictures, and everything else. And, and what, is, what can be done to, to teach this younger generation values? Okay. Uh, thank you. A question down here. Um, I'm, it's Philip Lee. I'm the local member of parliament, probably the only politician here. I, I, it's been alleged that I'm out of touch with the present. Um, all I'd say is I was at a dinner uh, party the other day um, with fellow politicians and two columnists um, from newspapers. And the discussion was about the future and how newspapers were going to stop existing. And I asked the question, where's the content going? We didn't have a discussion. It was all about communication, how we were going to communicate our message. There was no discussion about actually how we were going to formulate our message. My fear of all of this is, is that all we're going to end up doing is just communicating all the time and we're not actually learning and we're not actually thinking. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in comments of the panel. So uh, that's an anti-spin message uh, from a politician. Thank you very much. I used to work for um, AIM Hire, and um, similar to this guy said, we had to communicate through a very, very regulated um, email uh, website. I just wondered what the panel's views were on adding, as teachers, adding pupils on Facebook and whether that should be encouraged or discouraged. Um, okay. Uh, s s someone here and then someone at the very back with a big voice. I know you've got a big voice at the back. Yes, down here. Go. I just wanted to... Um, go on with the point somebody else made about never having time off and I'd like to ask the panel if they feel there's an abuse by employers there's some big city firms who make it a sackable offence to turn your Blackberry off day or night 365 days a year and a member of my family discovered that one when he switched it off for 20 minutes on Christmas Day Hi, um, I'm from the Facebook generation being only 20 years old um, Facebook is very helpful in as well as other social networks such as Twitter. And I think you're dismissing the traditional methods too much and too quickly. Um, Facebook's also very helpful in terms of jobs. I know um, both my university um, course and someone I'm employed by have groups on Facebook which make contact a lot easier when there's a lot of people. Okay, uh, th th thank you for that point of view. And then a final, final point here, and that was just ten points of view. Yes. Well, I'm not a Facebook generation, but I'm an internet generation. Being dyslexic, the computer changed my life. I went back to university. I've now done a master's. I write. I read. I have always read, but now I can read even anything. I can go on TED. I can find out about the... I don't know, how the American economy okay. works. I can... It's incredible. We'll it's that. changed my life. <laughs> Okay, we're going to go in reverse order uh, here. Reverse order. Is, is that fair? Reverse order, starting with Ben. If I can remember all of the points. Um, the point I would like to just go with is the one about solitude. I think it's a matter of self-discipline to be able to turn these things off so you can get some work done, of course. But what people don't remember is what it was like to not have this globally connected network of people. One of the things that the Internet has done, which is massively underestimated, is it has enabled people to connect to other people who are just like them. The fact that you can't be alone anymore is absolutely awesome. Well, indeed, it depends how you're alone with. And, and in the rock and roll sense, indeed. Well, uh, there's the identity and things like that. But, but for people of, who are unsure of their sexuality or who have an illness that is, that is extremely rare or who are interested in something that's particularly obscure or have a hobby which isn't supported by the, by the place that they live, if they're the only gay in the village, the internet is amazing. And we forget entirely what it was like 
before to be truly alone. Right. Thank you, Ben. And these are just summative points in about one minute from, from each panel. I don't want to leave you with the impression, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm a Luddite. I, as I've said, strongly favour the use of these technologies in education and indeed pioneer the use of strategic games as a way of educating uh, history students. So I, I'm not the Luddite in this, in this conversation. My, my points are very simple. One, the time that we spend in serious reading is very important. And that is measurably lower today than it was in 1923. It's lower today than it was in 1953. It is significantly down. And that means that our culture, what I began by calling Western civilization, is not being transmitted to the next generation wholly. They are getting maybe bits of it, but they're fragments, very short fragments in my experience. The content of what people read matters. There's good and bad stuff to read. And my sense is that the good is being driven out by the bad in the bulk of on-screen reading that goes on. My third and final point is chatter is not culture. And the biggest problem that I see in both the United States and the United Kingdom is that an increasing proportion of teenagers' time at school and at home is absorbed by chattering with one another. And the content, the quality of this chatter, is mind-numbingly banal, ladies and gentlemen. It's not sophisticated. It's just the subconscious of the teenager finding an outlet that it didn't have in my day when I had to sit alone reading J.D. Salinger or whatever it was. That's what concerns me. The amount of time spent reading, the quality of what is read, versus the amount of time spent in inane electronic chatter. Thank you. Very much indeed. I think that's a round of applause for everybody. I think we will be much. Uh, and okay, Harvey. Okay, um, I'd like to uh, continue your theme. I'm not a Luddite either. I love new technology. I've loved it all my life. I follow it. I'm a gadget freak, freak, and I must have everything that comes out as it comes out on the morning of. However, my concern is one about knowledge. And my concern is that what the computer has done become today is a massive great reference book. It's an Encyclopedia Britannica gone mad. And consequently, nobody that I know of or have ever heard of has actually read Encyclopedia Britannica. You use it as a reference. And because you use it as a reference and you know it's there, you neither remember it, utilise it in a, in a further way or take on the thought process of where you could get to. So my concern is, one, we may be stimulating using the new technology in terms of how fast it can go, what it can do, and, and in terms of hacking, of course, it's brilliant, but in terms of creativity and stimulation, particularly in the business that I've grown up in, which is music, our creative level in music is virtually at zero because there is nothing there to stimulate you through to take it on. Everything you need to know in life is a reference point on that computer. Therefore, you don't have to think about it, learn about it. You just refer to it because it's there. And that shuts the brain down, and that's what worries me. Okay. 
Jenny. I just like to disagree very slightly with Harvey there because actually I think what the availability of all that information does is to say to people that you're free now to use your mental energy not in trying to recall those facts, which you know you can tap into Google and get in five <laughs> seconds, but in how you connect those facts. And the essence of creativity is how do you take information that's already known and start using it in a different way. And I think that's what this generation can do. And I share Neil's concern about reading. I was a child who did nothing but read. Um, and I have one child who does and one, one who hasn't at all. And I spent years agonising about that. But now that he's 19, it's dawned on me that um, although he's read very few of the books that I wish he had done, he's been able to pursue his interests through the internet because we live, frankly, in an, in an era of magic. Mm. In an era when my son, whose passion was American politics in the age of 14, was able to go online, follow every American presidential campaign, every Senate race, watch the Barack Obama speeches that were never going to be... Um, outlined here and the consequence is, is that he's ended up at 19 knowing amazing amounts about American politics which he hopes to make his future life and that is the kind of in-depth knowledge which you could not have got from reading the Encyclopedia Britannica and he's been able to bring together so much in that in that way I'd also like to say that I think for those of us of this generation it is also absolutely stunning the fact that everything is available to us at all times and I never ceased to wonder at the fact that I can wake up in the morning and find out anything about anything through the internet. And I think the fact that I need never be alone unless I choose to is one of the greatest boons that has ever happened to humankind. And I think we all glory in it. And if you want six hours off, turn them off. The one last thing I'd like to say is the lady whose um, son is, enthr is enthralled to city firm. I'm sorry, that's the deal. If you want to earn millions and be a master of the universe, you're the absolute servant to your company, and that's what you sign up for. Okay, Sarah. Um, well, I know. Um, I think without wanting to create false dichotomies, I think it's important now that I, that I swing around. And I mean, I am a professor of literature. Right? I mean, I, I love books. There's nothing here that I'm going to say that, is, that, is a, uh, that would be ever denying the importance of books. Um, but that said, I think we can also sometimes overstate it. As much as I love literature, as important as I think literature is, if it were true that reading Adam Smith and reading Locke actually made us all better people, then university departments, history departments, and political economy departments would be full of the best people in society. And I'm pretty sure that's not the case. At least it hasn't been in my experience. They're not actually always the nicest and the most erudite and actually, you know, the, 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 they're not the, the most socialized, God knows. Um, so the, so the, the, I just think that there's, that there's ways in which we can start to say, okay, well, because, you know, because I love books, then therefore books are good, and then we start creating these false mor moral systems. Um, to the point, to the, to the question that was asked me um, about the transmission of values, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's really important. But again, I would say that the... the and, and I agree. We are, we are reading less than we used to, and I agree that that is a bad thing. But we are reading less of those kinds of books. We're reading more of different kinds of things. Um, we're reading more nonfiction. We're reading more newspapers. What we need is to be teaching people, um, which is what I think we all try to do in, in education, to teach critical thinking. And that's what I think people need. They need to be able to separate the voracious, as, you, as the gentleman in the back was saying, what, there is stupidity everywhere. There is ignorance everywhere. The internet certainly allows it to, to, uh, to, to proliferate. Um, but, that's, but I do think that that's always been there. I think it's more visible and louder than it used to be. And what we need are the critical thinking skills and the communication skills in order to uh, combat 
uh, that stupidity and that ignorance and that hostility and that violence and the anger and all of the negative things that we see on the internet. My point is that those negative things are part of, are, are unfortunately part of humanity and part of society. They have always been with us. The internet is making them proliferate more rapidly and it is reaching more people and I agree that it is worrying what it's doing to children in, in particular because their access, they're not being protected in the ways that they used to be. But it seems to me that these are problems of medium but that but the issues themselves remain the ones that we've always had to deal with. So that's not complacency. It's to say that we have the same problems and we're still trying to solve them. Well, that's an in in incredibly... Thank you. It, that was uh, an incredibly high-level uh, debate. Uh, thanks to Editorial Intelligence. Thank you to the five panellists. Thank you to uh, everyone in the audience. Great, great questions at great level of it. It felt very intense here that your, your concentration to me, it, it, as, as somebody who cares passionately about education and who runs a school, it is this. This is the key question. It, what I want it, it is deep uh, learning, uh, deep reading, deep experience and deep relationships, true loving uh, relationships. Uh, and the question in my mind is, is where is all of this digital technology? Is that enhancing it? Uh, or is that detracting from it? And, and the answer that, that this has done for me is just say, maybe and in some areas, and, and, and discrimination is perhaps uh, the key word for me that's coming uh, out of this and has been refined and tightened as a result of these five brilliant minds up here on stage. This is the last event of the Festival of Education of 2011. I would like to thank, and don't worry, it's not going to take long, uh, it, the Sunday Times, uh, who have been brilliant partners. Uh, I would like to thank... Uh, the, the, the Pearson, I'd like to thank McKinsey, I'd like to thank Microsoft, I would like to thank uh, all of you for coming, I'd like to thank all the, the helpers, particularly uh, the student uh, helpers who have uh, worked tirelessly for two days for uh, no money, but just the approval of their headmaster, which is worth more than any money could possibly give them. Uh, uh, many, uh, 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 a huge army of support staff uh, uh, and academic staff have made this possible. Uh, invidious to pick out anybody, but I'm going to, I like being invidious. Um, I'm going to pick out uh, David James uh, and also Jane London uh, uh, and, and the whole team, actually. Uh, and my final thanks is to you uh, for supporting. It was a real headache getting a festival of education off the ground. Like, huh, what's this about? Festival of education? Uh, rubbish. Uh, and you're proving uh, this is working. And next year is going to be uh, 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 even better. This, this year has been so good, and I'm so deeply grateful to all of you. Thank you for your support. Have a wonderful year. See you next year.